Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. When a financial institution gets into trouble, it can cause a chain reaction, punishing investors, banks, and even countries along the way. Contagion can be rapid, unpredictable, and destabilizing. I want to know what factors cause these crises to spread and what we should do about it as investors. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is a cocoa and are they about to pop? Okay, let's get into it. So this week, we're talking about contagion. And Robin, what could possibly have made us choose this topic for this week? Well, we're watching headlines as we record this. And of course, this is the banking problem that we've got in the US, but also now spreading to Asia, but also Europe. So maybe we should start with just a general definition of what do we mean by contagion? It's a word we've used a lot on the podcast, and we've never actually dug into it. Well, the problem is that Fear is something which you can't contain. You can have really good policy, you can have lots of regulation, but at the end of the day, what really spooks people is what causes disruption in markets, but also for institutions. So I'd say it's a kind of spilling of fear throughout markets. Yeah, I mean, colloquially, we might kind of think of it as the domino effect, right? You get one domino falling and then it knocks over others. But the thing with contagion is you don't know which dominoes are next, right? It's kind of (laughs) mysterious domino effects. But that's always what happens. You get a kind of epicenter of the crisis. And usually it's a small, obscure market that nobody's heard of. And then it kind of broadens. And the first stage is usually people say, oh, but look, this is a small, obscure market, which is irrelevant. And then, oh, okay. It's on everyone's balance sheets. (laughs) Unbalanced to us. And the problem nowadays is that we have such huge interconnected markets where these relationships aren't obvious. That can happen through derivatives. So if you've got a derivative that gives you exposure to another bank, say, it's the equivalent of six degrees of separation between two different people. But this time it's for a banking crisis or a sovereign debt crisis. Or a sovereign debt crisis or a currency crisis. I mean, when I've looked into what macroeconomists say about contagion, they do have kind of a technical definition, which they can never agree on. But broadly, they seem to define contagion as an excess correlation of assets over and above what could be justified by economic fundamentals. Well, let's take an example. That's always a good place to start. So let's look at the UK banking system. Now, you might not think that the UK would be correlated with Asia very strongly. But in fact, if you look at the links between banks, particularly banks like HSBC, they have a big Asian presence. So if there's a problem in China, that can spread to the UK. And the Bank of England pointed this out, for example, in one of their financial stability reports. So there are lots of these kind of threads which are kind of invisible until you dig quite deep into the balance sheets of these companies. And I think the point with contagion is it amplifies the move. So a small butterfly wing can create a massive bear crisis. So, for example, in this crisis that we're seeing right now with banks, you'd have thought that Silicon Valley Bank is kind of irrelevant to people in the UK. I mean, we haven't even got much of a tech sector at all. It's almost invisible if you plot it for the FTSE, for example. But what's happened is that we've had this kind of escalation, which is driven by fear. And it happens so quickly, doesn't it? So there's an interesting paper I was looking at called The Unholy Trinity of Financial Contagion, which 
I like the title, so I read the paper, basically. <laughs> and they kind of made a distinction between contagion and spillover effects. And the basic difference that makes something contagion is that it happens super quickly. So they refer to contagion as an episode in which there are significant immediate effects in a number of countries following an event, and the consequences are fast and furious and evolve over a matter of hours or days. Which this crisis for banking globally has definitely ticked in terms of speed. I mean, it seems like every Sunday night, something ridiculous happens just before the markets are about to open. It's weird how they always sort of resolve these banking crises on weekends, isn't it? Like the market closes on Fridays and regulators like, everything's fine, guys, no panic. And then we hear on Sunday night that, oh, a globally systemically important bank has just been thrown into another one. Absorbed. It was funny, wasn't it, how UBS said it was an acquisition and Credit Suisse <laughs> said it was a merger. <laughs> Defiant until the end. I mean, it's awful in a way because there are going to be lots of jobs lost in this merger. But you're right, it always seems to happen at the weekends. I remember Lehman weekend. So this weekend, it felt a little bit like Switzerland's version of the Lehman weekend. But I think the resolution is probably the best that we could have hoped for in the sense that there wasn't a kind of disorderly bankruptcy. Well, we'll come on to that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think we're still at the early stages of the fallout. And when I read the Bank of England statement about Silicon Valley Bank, it just was ringing alarm bells in my head. For example, they said, no other UK banks are directly materially affected by these actions or by the resolution of SVB UK's US parent bank. The wider UK banking system remains safe, sound and well capitalised. Yeah, the word that sets alarm bells ringing for me there is direct. (laughs) Because contagion is often an indirect consequence. So maybe we should come on to the sort of transmission mechanisms of contagion. Let's start with the direct ones. And I think the first obvious one is if a financial institution does go bankrupt and it has debt, that debt is sitting on someone else's balance sheet and is now distressed. And lots of people have been buying, we'll talk about this later, but things like cocoa bonds... All of the cocoa bonds for Credit Suisse have essentially been marked down to zero. So the immediate question now is who is holding that stuff? Who is holding the paper? And has somebody taken too much risk? And I guess what are those assets collateralizing? Because they might have been posting that debt as collateral for some loan themselves. It's possible. Something like cocoa bonds probably wouldn't have been used as collateral because they've got a fair old haircut. Usually you'd use something like a sovereign bond for that. But yeah, it's certainly possible. And then we've got derivatives. So what's the derivatives book that people hold? And what's their counterparty exposure with Credit Suisse? Although in this case, I guess it'll just be absorbed into UBS's counterparty. So just quickly, what is a derivative, just for people that don't know? So this is when instead of buying a thing like a stock or a bond, you buy a contract that gives you a payoff which is some function of the price of that asset. So for example, a call option has a kind of hockey stick payoff where if it's below a certain price, there's no increase in the price of the derivative. But then if you go above the strike price, the price of the derivative goes up one for one. So it's non-linear. So it's kind of like instead of owning the actual asset, you're making a bet on its value with some other party. And what we're saying here is if the other party blows up, your bet may no longer be paid out, even if it's good. That's right. And you kind of carve up the payoff structure of an asset. So you could say, well, look, I want this stock, but I only want the upside or I only want the downside or I want three times levered upside above a certain price. So it's these nonlinear payoffs, which in turn have leverage built into them. 
And that's one of the problems, which is that the options can blow up and the derivatives can blow up because of the leverage. And the thing is with investment banks and other financial institutions is they often use derivatives to hedge certain risks, don't they? So if your counterparty blows up on the other side of your derivative, maybe your hedge has just broken. And that's a worry. But nowadays, we do have really strict limits. And the risk department of these investment banks is super careful about their counterparty risk. Because this was one of the things that came out of 2008, which is that they're super careful about collateralization, marking to market. So, you know, the gains and losses don't get too big. So I think the derivative counterparty exposure is unlikely to be the thing which triggers this thing to blow up. And one thing which I thought was interesting was that in the latter half of last week, when Credit Suisse was really wobbling, you started to see a lot of reports that other banks were refusing to deal with Credit Suisse as a counterparty, which is kind of the final nail in the coffin, isn't it? If you're a bank and everyone else is refusing to do business with you, you can't last long in that situation. Then it's over because ultimately banking is built on faith. You know, if you don't believe in the counterparty's soundness, the regulator can say whatever they want. The core equity tier one capital ratio can be whatever you want, but you're not going to believe that you should do business with them. Banking is a confidence trick. Once the confidence goes, there's no trick. (laughs) Well, in a sense, that's true of all products and services. You know, if people don't trust you, they're not going to do business with you. So we've kind of covered the direct roots of contagion, which is you might own those bad assets and you might have counterparty exposure and your derivative might break. But there's all sorts of indirect linkages, isn't there? So I know one might be that banks often own similar assets to each other, don't they? So when you've got a bank that's in distress and is desperately trying to raise capital and just starts flogging the things it owns, obviously when there's a lot of selling of assets going on in the market, the price comes down. And the other people that hold those assets where the price is falling are often its competitor banks. So a classic example of this would have been Silver Thursday when two brothers, the Hunt brothers, cornered the silver market. And you might be thinking, okay, well, so what? They've bought lots of silver. They've pushed up the price. They're going to sell it a massive profit. How would that potentially cause a systemic problem? But the problem was that that spilled out via hedge funds. You'd also bought positions in silver, for example, via the silver futures contracts, which had leverage due to the derivative structure. So what happened is that hedge funds became forced sellers of other assets. They couldn't sell their silver, say, and then that caused a spread into other asset classes. Because usually what happens in these crises is you've got an illiquid thing, which you can't sell. So you sell the liquid stuff. And so a crisis in one asset class, which is often a liquid, spills over into the other more liquid assets. Oh, that's interesting. Because I was just thinking, you know, it's about that one asset in particular. And if lots of banks own mortgages, for example, and people are flogging mortgages on the market, then everyone who owns mortgages is going to do badly. But that's an interesting point, isn't it? That if what's doing badly is something that you can't sell, then the bank in trouble is going to be forced to sell the good assets and they're going to go down in price. And we should all pity the Mexican peso because that's the kind of whipping child of any EM crisis in currency because it's really liquid. It's one of the kind of more liquid EM currencies. So if there's a crisis in any kind of EM currency, the illiquid stuff, people actually have to sell the peso. And that's unfortunate for Mexico because even if it's absolutely fine, it gets sold off in these crises. So what you don't want to be is the most liquid of a low liquidity group of assets. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. And another means I heard of how contagion can spread, which you might not often think about, is that banks originate similar assets to each other. 
So if one starts to go a little bit crazy and give out loans too easily without the underwriting discipline you might expect, then it kind of pushes other banks to do the same thing because they don't want to lose market share. And now the loan books of all the banks are going down in quality. And I remember with CDOs, the collateralized debt obligations in 2008, it was kind of like that. You know, one bank would be saying, oh, look, we've got this huge CDO book. And all the other banks would be saying, oh, what's that? And they're just jealous <laughs> of this big pile of crap. <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't very profitable. That was the other shocking thing, which is that, you know, CDOs, you're not going to get a lot of money from originating them. Is it just the incentives inside the bank were way off then? Well, if you see that the other banks are doing it and your customers come to you and say, look, I just bought a CDO from X bank. Why doesn't your bank do it? It looks kind of embarrassing. And if you think there is another source of profit, then why wouldn't you get in on the action? Yes, I guess you don't know if it's going to develop into a profitable business down the line, even if it's low margin to begin with. That's right. It can kind of evolve into something which is profitable. And usually that's where you get the biggest bid off for spreads is in a new asset class. If you're selling equity, the bid off for spreads almost zero if you're trading with an institution. But if you're trading a CDO at the time, you know, you were talking about a one percentage point bid off a spread. So I think that's where innovation is good for banks, because if there's a new asset class that comes along, it's kind of exciting and new. People are willing to pay more on fees for those. And there's a nice example just before the financial crisis of a sort of decline in the quality of debt and how banks just have to keep on issuing due to competitive pressures. So people were starting to get worried about the leveraged buyout market where banks would lend money for private equity to go and buy companies. People were saying, well, maybe banks should slow down with this. But the Citibank CEO remarked, as long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. (laughs) What a great quote. But then just 16 months later, the bank was seeking a government bailout. Maybe you shouldn't have been dancing. Yeah, maybe not so enthusiastically. But this point about contagion with different asset classes is a good one. And this is, I think, one of the ways in which cryptocurrency could affect things like money market funds. This is something I've talked about in the past where they buy similar things. If you've got a stable coin, the idea is that it keeps at a price of $1. And it does that by buying super safe assets like short dated government bonds, commercial paper and money market funds buy exactly the same thing, the same paper. So if there's a run on one, it could spread via the fall in the assets which they hold in common to money market funds or vice versa. You could get volatility spilling from money market funds into stablecoins. I think it's definitely true, isn't it, that if liquidity is low, it's going to massively amplify any of these crises. And liquidity gets lower and lower as interest rates get higher and higher, right? Yeah. And I think this is a worry right now, which is what we're going to discover is where the lack of liquidity is right now. So, for example, at the weekend, we saw a statement from the Federal Reserve and other major central banks that they're going to go from weekly maturity operations. And this is for swaps between those banks, and they're going to go to daily. All right, we need to explain this because I only half understand this. So swaps is where, let's say, a central bank in Europe can take its euros and get dollars back quickly and easily. That's right. The reason why they do this is because let's say you've got a commercial bank in Europe, and it's got liabilities in the US, which are in dollars, of course, and it can't get enough dollars quickly enough to service that debt. What can it do? Well, now it can go to its central bank and say, hey, ECB, use your dollar swap lines to get us a bit of cash. Get me some dollars, stat. (laughs) That's pretty much what the conversation would be. Unless you want to bail us out again. Yeah. (laughs) 
So is it like a preemptive, I hesitate to use the word, but bailout? Well, I'd say it's just kind of like opening up a wider plumbing between the different currencies. So making the pipes wider for liquidity. So there is another way, I think, that contagion can spread indirectly. And I found it super interesting when I heard about it, which is the idea of common creditors. So you could have taken a loan from a bank and be sitting on the sidelines. You're fine. You're not in trouble. Everything's good. But then someone completely unrelated to you gets into trouble, goes bankrupt or whatever. And then the bank that owns their debt, who also owns your debt, is now short of money and starts calling in your loans. But your credit quality hasn't gone down. But now you've got to find all this money and quickly. And this is one example where you do have this kind of cobweb of relationships, which aren't obvious until things start to go wrong. And as you say, the country itself can have no problems whatsoever. But because financial conditions would then start tightening in the related country via this indirect relationship, that would affect its economy. Because if financial conditions tighten for its banks, then that'll slow down the economy. And this is how this kind of stuff spreads. So I heard that this effect, this common creditor effect, was part of the contagion in the 1997-98 Asia crisis, where European and Japanese banks were the common creditors for many of the Asian countries and started tightening credit conditions when only a few of them were really getting into trouble. And ultimately it led to a recession in Japan in 1998, a collapse in the Hong Kong dollar, and ultimately it could have spilt over into the Russian collapse, and that happened in 1998. So, you know, that was one really nice example of something which spread out from EM. What actually started the crisis in the first place was when the Thai baht broke its peg. Because what you can do with some currencies, you can say that, look, we'll just have the Thai baht equal to a fixed number of dollars. But of course, that only works if you can defend the peg. If your central bank has enough currency to buy and sell to keep it in line. And then once it was attacked and the peg broke that triggered a kind of chain reaction. The Malaysian central bank had to intervene to defend the ringgit. The Philippine peso sold off. The Indonesian currency, the rupiah, traded in a band and that band had to widen and then it ultimately collapsed the currency. Seems so unfair though, doesn't it? Like one country in Asia starts struggling and then all of them get punished. But even the US market, the Dow Jones sold off hugely. It had one of its largest weekly falls as a result of this crisis. So again, who would have predicted that the Thai baht, which is a currency that most people aren't even aware of, could trigger a big sell-off in US equity? But it's because of these hidden links between different countries and different institutions, usually financial ones, Yeah, it's always the banks, isn't it? You don't get contagion because uh, a hairdresser goes bankrupt. All the other hairdressers don't go bankrupt in the domino effect. (laughs) (laughs) So those examples we've talked about so far are kind of direct links and indirect links, but they're all explainable, really, in rational terms. But some contagion happens for completely irrational reasons. At least that's how it seems. You get this kind of herding behavior where investor confidence goes and then they're looking around for, what else do I need to sell? What's going to be next? I mean, some people say that Silicon Valley Bank was because of that, because it had a very similar depositor base, which would have pulled out the deposits at the same time. But I think this is ultimately a little bit like Prisoner's Dilemma. I mean, you say it's irrational to pull out your money, because if you're a depositor, if you pull out your money, you're actually making your bank less stable. So it works against your interests. But if you're the first person to pull out your money, then it is in your interests, because, you know, you'll be okay when everyone else won't be. I mean, that's why we said banking is a confidence trick, right? Because there isn't enough money there for everyone, right? That's just a fact. If everyone runs at the same time, the bank goes bankrupt. 
And whenever you see politicians talking about this, you realise they're complete muppets because they don't realise that banking couldn't work unless it had risk. It's not profitable unless you take balance sheet risk to run a bank. So they always have to take some kind of risk. It's just mitigating the risks that makes the difference between a good bank and a bad bank. And like we said last week, talking about Silicon Valley Bank, no bank, no matter how good, can survive an all-out bank run. And you can't really regulate against bank runs. All you can really do is have these deposit guarantees. And they're always limited because if you had a 100% deposit guarantee, essentially you'd have taken the risk out of banking and its profitability. And you'd have introduced huge moral hazard because then, you know, the banks could take as much risk as they wanted because they wouldn't be on the hook. And you'd have put unlimited liability onto the public balance sheet, which you should always be careful of. But that's what people are asking for now. They're asking for unlimited deposit guarantees from the central bank in the US. Yeah, which is unusual because the way the deposit guarantee is actually funded is from a levy on banks. So if you made it unlimited, you'd have to have an unlimited levy on banks, right? It just doesn't make conceptual sense. You'd be changing the whole structure of the banking system to do that. And if the Fed steps in and guarantees the deposits, well, again, you can't do that because you can't have no risk. Yeah, at that point, you have a nationalised banking system in all but name, right? You may as well have every individual having direct deposits at the Fed just cut out all these middlemen <laughs> banks. <laughs> no? Yeah, that's exactly what it would be. That's where we're going to end up with central bank digital currencies. That's a topic for another week, though. Yeah. But with herding behaviour, which we were talking about, it's not just literal bank runs, is it? It also applies to other asset classes. Here's one way to think about it. If you see red hot capital flows into any asset class or any particular sector, you can bet there's going to be a reckoning. Let's look at some examples. So cryptocurrency, huge run up, incredible returns. And it took real strength, I think, not to be sucked into that. Everybody wants to have a go because if you see the returns of a thousand percent, two thousand percent, it's so difficult to kind of resist that temptation. I resisted it, Roman. You didn't, I did. <laughs> oh, well, I had a momentum strategy, so I did avoid the fall. Yeah, you put some fancy words on it when you bought crypto. <laughs> <laughs> but it was strictly fun money, right? So this was my fun portfolio. So I would never do that in my core. But there are so many examples of this where one asset class just goes crazy. Another one that I lived through was the dot-com bubble, where anything which had a dot-com in its name and a business plan, which was just one side of A4, so we're going to sell pet supplies, but wait, this is different because it's online, right? So that's going to be amazing. You know, that gets huge valuations overnight. So did the one that sold books online, but that one actually worked out. Yeah, so far. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I think that, you know, if you see these red hot flows, people running into an asset class, you can bet that the opposite's going to happen sooner or later. And the bigger the run up, the worse the reckoning will be. Yeah, it's interesting. In that paper I referenced earlier, The Unholy Trinity of Financial Contagion, they identify, unsurprisingly, three conditions that need to be in place to get this broad contagion. And one, the first one, is an abrupt reversal in capital inflows. The bubble popping, basically, right? The money stops coming and it all goes into reverse. The second one was surprise announcements or unanticipated events, which I thought was an interesting point. And it's kind of what differentiates contagion from that more slow spillover effect we talked about. Like when it surprises the market, that's when things start breaking quickly. And the third was a leveraged common creditor, which is something we've mentioned already. So that's interesting because I think a lot of those crises that we've talked about would be explained fairly well by those triggers. 
And the other thing some people say about how contagion can spread is that it presents an opportunity to hedge funds and other financial actors to launch speculative attacks on what might be otherwise healthy companies. Do you buy into this idea? Oh, no question. I mean, for example, the Asian crisis in July of 1997, the Malaysian prime minister came right out and said, look, we're going to blame George Soros for this attack on our currency. Everyone blames George Soros, though, but does he have that much power? Well, I think at the time he did. You know, he had a huge amount of capital. And if he attacked a currency, you knew about it. He did the same thing with sterling, for example. Yeah, and that was before we were in emerging market. (laughs) (laughs) More complaints. But no question, these create huge opportunities. So if you're someone that's drip feeding into the market, let's talk about something practical. This will push down valuations and it will create these entry points. Forget hedge funds. This is an opportunity for you because valuations go down when we have these crises. And that's good for most people over the long term. Not so good if you're just about to retire, clearly. But that's why we de-risk just before retirement, just in case this coincides with the time when you need the money. So valuations and asset prices go down, clearly, and volatility increases. Is that the other consequence to be wary of? Oh, yeah. Volatility kind of slops from one asset class to the other. You never have just one asset class that becomes highly volatile. It spills into different asset types, and it rarely stays contained. And I guess the other point is that we often talk about diversification as a way of mitigating risk in investing. Whereas that probably becomes a little less effective, doesn't it, in these contagion events? Because the whole point is many different asset classes start moving together as it spreads from one to the other. I think what it does is it redefines what's safe. Every different crisis, what's safe is slightly different. So in 2008, treasuries were very safe. If you had long duration treasuries, you'd have been in great shape. Gold was also safe. Cash was safe. In this crisis, again, I think cash is probably safe, although with inflation above 10% in the UK, not so great. But still, it preserves the capital. Gold, I saw, rallied quite a lot. So that's a fairly good safe haven. But every crisis is different. But there are certain asset classes which repeatedly serve as a good place to park your money when you're scared. Cash is usually the best of them. But the question is, who's the cash held with right now? (laughs) Yeah, who's holding the cash and what cash is it? And is it actually real cash or something that looks a little bit like cash? (laughs) Cash Cash-like. Yeah. I mean, I think we shouldn't underestimate the role that higher interest rates are playing in the risk of contagion. So I read some research around the global financial crisis in 2008. And this showed that in that period, a one percentage point reduction in global interest rates, and that was defined as the weighted average of European, Japanese and US policy rates. So a one percent reduction in that is associated with countries' probability of financial crisis being reduced by one percentage point. So they did find a clear link. And it's not really surprising, is it? But this is why I think many markets now are pricing in a fall in rates, certainly much more than they were before this crisis. If you look at the Fed Fund futures market, suddenly we've turned around in terms of what the expectations were. It's really interesting what's going to happen, isn't it? Because the banking crisis could get so severe that they have no choice but to cut rates and just cross their fingers on inflation. But they can't do that. I still think that inflation is a much bigger problem than the financial crisis that we're seeing right now. It is that we're seeing right now, but that's the point, isn't it? These things spread. That's the whole point of this episode. (laughs) But I think that it's unlikely the Fed's going to completely ignore inflation and just start cutting rates. It can't do that. I think that's why it's doing these kind of big pre-bailout-y kind of things where they're 
implicitly guaranteeing the deposits in the US, even if not explicitly doing it. They're allowing banks to sort of launder their balance sheets onto the Fed balance sheet to raise capital. And they're opening all these dollar swap lines with central banks around the world. They're like doing their best to stave off what could be really bad and ruin their main goal. But I think one of the outcomes of this is that banks will be more careful with their lending. That's going to tighten financial conditions and it'll actually do what the Fed's been trying to do all along, which is slow down the economy and ultimately reduce demand and inflation. So I think tightening of financial conditions is an almost certain outcome of this. So if you were a real conspiracy theorist about the Fed, you'd say, well, this was their plan all along. You know, a banking crisis is going to tighten financial conditions and do what they failed to do so far, which is to bring demand back in line with supply. So hike until something breaks. Well, they wanted something to break, maybe. Because what they were doing wasn't working. You know, incremental increases in the Fed funds rate just weren't touching inflation, the core bits of it. So maybe this is what it takes in order to actually get their policy to work. Maybe a catalyst, that's a way to think of it, where you have a slow chemical reaction, but then something else comes along and suddenly speeds up its effect. I mean, I don't subscribe to that, but... You explained it very well for someone who's not a conspiracy theorist. (laughs) (laughs) So if you do want to talk about what's going on in markets at any point in time, you can do that as part of our community on our Slack channel, and you can do it in a one-to-one session with me. Just go to pensioncraft.com to find out more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week, and a topical one, is what is a cocoa. I love cocos. Do you love cocoa pops as well? I don't actually. No, Rice Krispie man. (laughs) I used to like Rice Krispies, but not for a long time have I eaten those things. But anyway, look, cocos, what are they? Now, this was a kind of regulator's asset class in the sense that after 2008, people didn't want bailouts anymore. So they were thinking, how can we create an asset class which rewards investors with a fairly high income But at the same time, if a bank runs into trouble and we need to shore up its balance sheet, it's going to do that automatically. And that gave birth to the cocoa. So is it a bond specific to banks that's not as secure as a normal bond? It's a bond which is... It's a spicy bond. (laughs) (laughs) Another name for them is an AT1, alternative tier one. So what does all this mean? Well, Let's say that you're a bank, right? And you run into trouble and your loss-absorbing part of the balance sheet on the liability side is your equity. So let's say you've made loans, the loans have gone bad, the loans sit on the asset side of your balance sheet and they shrink. What shrinks on the liability side is your equity. If it shrinks to zero, you're dead, you're bankrupt. So what the regulators want is as much loss-absorbing capital on the liability side of the balance sheet as possible. So ideally what you'd do is if you've got a lot of debt on your balance sheet, on the liability side, wouldn't it be great if some of that debt automatically converted into loss-absorbing equity if your tier one capital ratio, the amount of equity, shrunk below a critical level? Interesting. Oh, we'll call it an alternative tier one bond or a cocoa. It's quite a nice wheeze, isn't it? So it's a bond that turns into equity if things go bad. And the name itself, Contingent Convertible, is contingent on the tier one capital ratio, which is this kind of magic ratio which central banks love. What it ensures is you've got enough loss-absorbing capital. Now, why is this topical at the moment? It's topical because Credit Suisse, which has just 
been acquired by UBS at the insistence of the regulators in Switzerland, their capital structure included $17 billion worth of these cocoa bonds. And as you say, usually you would expect when the banks, you know, getting into trouble, that these cocos are treated like equity or a little bit better than equity, right? But that's not what happened here, is it? What you'd expect to happen is the tier one capital ratio falls below a critical level. The cocos convert to equity. Not great for the cocoa holders because suddenly you get the shares of a company which is just going down the pan. So the shares will be very depressed. So normally what you'd have to do is sell them as quickly as possible which you could say is a kind of toxic thing. It's a kind of death spiral instrument from that point of view. But that's the kind of normal playbook, the sequence of events which people expected, because that's what happened in 2008. What happened this time around was that actually the core equity tier one ratio was okay for Credit Suisse. The problem was the deposit flight. So these things didn't trigger the tier one capital rule. So they didn't convert into equity. But there was a forced takeover. Now, I don't know what happened behind closed doors in Zurich on Sunday. Come on, Roman, you do. I don't. (laughs) But (laughs) you've got your ears on the ground over there. If hypothetically I was senior management at UBS, one of the things I'd probably be really careful about is the amount of risk that I was taking onto my books by buying Credit Suisse. So there are lots of lawsuits, which I believe are still ongoing with Credit Suisse because of its failures in risk management in the past. So there had to be some guarantee of those. And I believe there was about 9 billion francs, which was offered to cover that risk. But also, if you've got this kind of bail-in capital, then I'd insist that it was triggered, personally. Already, we've seen talk of lawsuits by the cocoa bond holders of Credit Suisse saying, look, we should have been senior to equity in the capital structure. And that means that equity should have been wiped out for Credit Suisse equity holders before we got wiped out. Yeah, that's the point, isn't it? If I'm a cocoa bond holder, I'm annoyed here because equity hasn't gone to zero. It's had a massive haircut, but they're getting something, whereas cocoa has literally been put to zero by the regulator. And it's interesting in Bloomberg. So these are three headlines across the course of Sunday regarding these 81 cocoa bonds. Credit Suisse's riskiest bonds jump amid optimism over UBS talks. That's headline number one. A little bit later, Credit Suisse's riskiest $17 billion bonds in limbo after deal. And then the final headline, Credit Suisse's $17 billion of risky bonds are now worthless. (laughs) All in the space of a few hours. It went from, it's going to be good. We don't know. It's all gone wrong. (laughs) And you shouldn't underestimate how popular these cocos were because they were offering really high yields for seemingly little risk when we had a very yield-starved period. So a lot of people piled into these. And I remember speaking to a fund manager who was saying, look, we had to stop money flowing into our cocoa funds because we just didn't have enough bonds to buy with all the capital we were getting. That's how popular they were. There was an article published on Credit Suisse's website in January 2021, and the headline was Contingent Convertible Bonds. Better than bank equity? Question mark. (laughs) Which I love it. (laughs) Well, we know the answer to that now, don't we? I think the point here is that if you read the fine print of that cocoa bond contract, apparently it did say that in an event like this, they could be completely wiped out regardless of what happens to equity. Fine. Legally, it looks like the regulators sort of abided by that contract. But it's not what people probably expected, I think. And the question then becomes, oh, 
contagion risk. So the direct one is who owns these now worthless cocoa bonds, obviously. But the bigger one is, well, Credit Suisse is not the only bank that's issued cocoa bonds. There's around $275 billion worth of cocoa bonds issued in the European market. Now, presumably, people are going to be nervous now about all of those bonds. And then we get the signaling problem, which is that if the cocoa bonds sell off for a given bank, or I don't know, let's say Barclays, then you're thinking, well, you know, what's that telling me? What's that signaling about the risk with Barclays? I'm not saying Barclays is one of the ones at risk. That was just an example. I don't want to trigger a contagion myself. (laughs) I don't think enough people listen to the podcast for that to happen. But I think that's the kind of signaling that people worry about. Is the cocoa stuff selling off? And what does that mean? Do people know something? And that's how this fear spreads. I saw the HSBC stock as we're recording this on a Monday morning, it was down 6% in Hong Kong. And interestingly, they did issue fresh 81 cocoa bonds just three weeks ago. But these things are issued all the time yeah. because regulators absolutely love them because now that we've got this bail-in regime where we don't bail out banks anymore, it's bail-in, it's the investors who pay the price. These are absolutely perfect. They do convert to equity, hopefully, if there is a tier one capital problem, But do they? They don't. (laughs) Well, the problem this time around is that the tier one capital ratios are pretty good. It's not that that's causing the problem. We've regulated for the previous crisis. I mean, this time around, what would we do? We'd have to say, well, if your depositor base is too concentrated, (laughs) I don't know how would you have a bond that that would kind of work on that? It wouldn't. You know, it just wouldn't work. It's the lesson here. You said, why do people buy cocoa bonds? Because they offer a high yield. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Why are you getting a high yield for buying a bond on a bank? Why are banks saying, oh, is this better than equity? There's hidden risk there. There has to be. And this is the risk. You go to zero when you didn't expect it. But that's why I think it's always great to understand an asset class. Always ask yourself, what could go wrong? What am I getting paid for? And is this sufficient compensation for taking that risk? That's always the stuff that should go through your mind particularly with a novel asset class. It shouldn't be a question of, is there a risk? It should be, what are the risks? And how likely are they to happen? Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.